You are listening to the Let's Talk About Sex Trafficking Podcast. Your co-hosts, Christy Wells and Brittany Dunn, will interview survivors, industry experts, and community leaders who are committed to increasing survivor identification beyond 1%. This is the first step to ending child sex trafficking in America by 2030. Join us for real facts, real stories, and real ways you can be part of the movement to end child trafficking. When we founded Safe House Project in 2018, it was because we wanted to make a difference in combating trafficking. We all have got to do our part, but we want to help you understand the national landscape and really the importance of combating trafficking and how to engage. We are excited to introduce you to our friend and survivor leader, Kimberly Cookerans, who's going to explain her story, talk three ways that people can come alongside and support survivors. Kimberly, thank you for being on today. Thank you for having me. We're just excited to have you on here today. Thank you for taking a little bit of time from your work day to join us. Before we get started, do you want to just give us a little bit of information about you? The biggest part of me is my family. I have a large family with children and grandchildren, and I don't understand what it's like to cook in like a, a one size pot for like one person. <laughs> I cook up for 20 all the time. And even if I don't, it's like, please have someone over because I don't know what to do. Well, as we begin, you know, we want to always emphasize to our listeners that the survivors are the ones that really empower themselves. You know, our opportunity is to come alongside and, and love on survivors, care for survivors, um, give opportunities, but the word escape or rescue or survival or anything like that, you know, there's a lot of context and sometimes improper connotations with what those words mean. Survival and surviving a trafficking situation looks different for every survivor. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what escape really did look like for you and really what it, what helped you get through your trafficking situation? Yeah, if it's okay, I'll back up to what I was escaping from, just just for a little bit of context. Sure. And I was adopted at three days old into a very, very dark situation. My mom, I do truly believe she was unaware of the malintent of my adoptive father and his family and the people he associated with, but I was literally adopted to to torture and traffic and and they were very dark they, it was a satanic ritual abuse cult and they really had the intention to dominate to override a person's will to create a non-person in a lot of ways and starting at infancy when all of the neurons are developing when all of the attachments and you know identity and ideas of the world are are developing that that's when they they started with me hoping to really create someone who would do whatever they wanted for the rest of their lives or my life which is the intent of any trafficker they want to dominate they want to rule they want to be able to control someone who has that that darkness in their soul they want to hurt they want to dominate that is universal so mine was very extreme in to the point of torture and being part of humans being sacrificed and, and you know, literally being electrocuted and, and dying myself at times and in, in the trafficking them going as far as, you know, impregnating me and 
and taking those babies. And I know this is incredibly dark, but that's a lot of the stuff that you don't hear because there's so much shame and there's so much pain associated. And, you know, in, in the, that world of trafficking where they were trafficking us and, and abusing us to be used as sexual objects, as labor, as all of those things, they were also trafficking people to be sacrificed, to be just used in the most inhumane ways. There are, there's no one way. And, and that's one of the things I think that's hard for people is now people are kind of coming online and deciding, okay, this might be happening, but then there are so many deeper layers and levels that people are still not quite ready for. So I was coming from that and in, in all of that, my mind split, I became dissociative. I have dissociative identity disorder. I did a lot of self-harm, running away. I was very self-destructive and I didn't understand why because I also suppressed a lot of my memories. And in, in the world of everything needs to make sense and again, fit in boxes, when someone can't really tell you what's wrong, therefore it must be their fault. Like they, they must be crazy. You know, so I was just living in this chaotic world that didn't make any sense. I couldn't explain it. I was being abused almost every minute of my life. If I was home, whether it was sexual or not, I was being beat. I was being tortured. I lived in hell. And at some point I started to remember being sexually abused. It came in layers for me. I didn't even have the word trafficking associated with my trauma until I was 45 years old. There's so much that goes into that with interviewing and identifying victims that we have to allow a lot of space for things to reveal over time. You have to be safe to be able to engage in healing. There was no safety. So my behavior compelled intervention. I did try suicide because I was remembering being sexually abused. And that was kind of the catalyst for just this barrage of memories that are still at almost age 51, relentlessly coming forward and just assaulting my mind, assaulting my heart, assaulting everything. So my exit, to call it that, out of that type of, of torture and trauma was suicide, a suicide attempt. No one would say, hey, that's a good plan. But considering you know, I really was looking at death on any given day anyway. It gave me a safe place to further unravel. So I ended up in the psych ward and then I ended up in a shelter because my flashbacks and everything, they were so horrific. They were so bad. I had an eating disorder that was killing me. I just, I was so dissociative and we didn't really know that. We didn't understand those dynamics. It was still pretty new on the scene, it, this was back in 1990, I turned 20 in the psych unit, and people didn't have an association with dissociation that wasn't absolutely terrifying. It was, it was such a dark and terrifying time, and it took me years to even get my footing, and I'm still, I still have times where I don't have my footing, and I have to try and try again. When I ended up in the psych unit, I started to really remember, and then I just, determined that I was unsafe. I could not go back to where I was. So from there, I ended up in the shelter. And, and there, I went ahead and I changed my name legally. 
I, I relocated and I went into hiding. So that was, that was my exit. And, and my survival was, I mentioned the DID and that being able to dissociate for, with, for my brain to fragment. And it, it sounds like they call it a disorder and it is in some ways, but it's also an incredible way for a mind to survive. It's a God-given miracle, I think. And gosh, I don't want to cry. It's, it's, it's brutal to handle because he was my father. It was his brothers, it was their associates, it was bishops, it was neighbors. They were all abusing me. And so there was literally nowhere to turn. And so the only thing I had was myself. And so my brain could break. It's like, and it broke a lot. It's, it's very, very extreme how much my mind had to disintegrate to hold those pieces and not have them overcome me. And I feel like I'm, naturally tenacious and resilient and even with everything that's gone on i feel like i'm quite hopeful and loving and so because of the dissociation like those parts could come out and be in the world and i had people who loved me and who love me now people that have been willing to go into those dark places with me and hear hear what it is not just the subject but some of the details and walk the walk with me and have those scary conversations and call 911 when they have to surviving and and overcoming and escaping is it's just a myriad of factors and and I know I've been blessed by people who would just loved me and so sometimes intervention can be just loving and letting someone know they have worth and that they matter it's little touches like that from people who I'm still in touch with that helped save me. And they had no clue. They thought I was just cute and they loved me. But for me, it literally saved my life. So it doesn't have to be big things. It is also big things, but it doesn't have to be. No, it's incredible. Thank you for sharing. I know not every survivor wants to share all the parts of the past, but I think what you really illuminated was that it isn't one moment that's exit or escape. It's a lifetime of healing and it's a journey. And the moment in which your physical body leaves the situation of trafficking doesn't reflect the longevity in which the emotional and mental impact carries on. And so, so much of that is putting in the hard work and being willing to step into those memories and unpack that. And that's scary. And you've done incredible work because you radiate joy and hope and you are truly a light. What is one myth that you would want people to know about trafficking in America? There are so many myths. (laughs) I work on different task forces and I help create policy and fight this on as many levels as I can. And I was looking at different protocols for reporting in school systems and there were risk factors like things that you might spot and therefore report a concern. And I looked at that and I, in my childhood, when I was in school, did not meet any of those risk factors. I I wasn't truant. I was not a bad performer at school. I, in fact, was almost a 4.0 student. I was a cheerleader. I overexcelled, like I overcompensated. There are some stereotypes that people have as to what an abused victim or a traffic victim might look like. And some are true, 
you know, I, I work with a lot of survivors and there is a lot of addiction. There is a lot of poverty. There is a lot of interpersonal difficulty. And those things are true with me too, but I've just learned how to be nice and, and figure some of that out. But it's the myth that it looks like one thing or one race or one demographic or one culture we have to just let that disintegrate because again i i was a girl next door i was a cheerleader and i was literally being raped and abused every single night i was carrying babies in my womb while i was cheerleading and and getting my all my ab classes you know taken care of and sleeping less than an hour a night and being literally just beat every single night i don't know why i was able to respond that way and and not another way it could be happening next door or knowing it can be happening in our schools and in our churches and in our communities the wealthy the poverty you know all across all lines we have to be observant and again allow for the possibility that it could be happening and it's not ours to prove, but it is ours to observe and report. You know, when, when I work with children who are being abused in DCFS and I work a lot with suicide prevention, we don't have to solve it, but we do have to have our eyes and ears on it and report it to someone who has authority and the skill set to intervene. We are a brother's keeper. There are so many systems that need to improve. There's so much background. I'm 51 years old and I'm still trying to heal and I'm, I still don't have accessibility to the healing avenues. It's expensive. It, it takes a long time. And just be, like you were saying, just because you exit doesn't mean all of a sudden it's like, oh, yay, all is well. It's like, no, this is on the neurological level. These wounds are interpersonal. These wounds have changed the map of the world on a permanent basis. And we can bring in new information. We can change the reality and bring in the new, but the old doesn't go away. Those wounds, that pain, those ideas that we have of ourselves based on what was done to us or what we've had to do destroys your sense of self. You know, like who would who would want to fight for you? Any hope that you might possibly have that A, you can get out and heal or B, that you're worthy of it. There are so many myths and it just is what it is. It shows up how it shows up. And it can be in a school, it can be in a church, it can be across borders, it can be in a rural area, it can be in a you know city. And it, it can look like me and it can look like someone who can't make eye contact and can't stop using. No, that's, that's helpful information because I think the more that we can frame this issue and frame the um, context and the stories that survivors come from, the more we can help equip communities to truly be on watch. You know, that's part, to your point, it's not a checklist of just random signs and indicators that might not be applicable, but it's helping people understand the story so that when they see something that just even feels off, that they know that they can't, to your point, it might be those little acts of kindness of stepping in and, and loving on a child who seems to be struggling, but it could be those those big steps and those courageous steps of calling and reporting something. So I think you're right. It's so valuable for people to understand all of the different lenses of trafficking. Because we're really seeing communities become more aware of trafficking. What opportunities do you see for people to come in and support trafficking survivors? Sometimes 
because communities are becoming more aware, they become very zealot to the cause and maybe they'll post things or talk about it in a way that is, it heightens emotion and maybe heightens resolve, but to a survivor, it can be very triggering, it can be very harmful. And so we don't want to sensationalize the issue. We just need to be very, I use the word survivor friendly when we're talking about things and, and just make sure that our intention really is to do good and not, not sensationalize because that is so harmful. And as a community, learn the risk factors. Education, there's nothing that beats it. Knowing signs, knowing symbols, keeping your own children safe. I say that's that's step number one. Like, stay off your phones, stay engaged, watch them at the park, wherever they are, sit down and talk to them, ask about their friends, ask, get annoying. I, I think my children don't love just sitting and chatting with me, but you know, in order to build rapport, in order to know them and to know that something's off, you have to have that time. If we're aware and we know what we're seeing, then we can never not see it, you know? And that's the same with our neighbors. I, I just, I can't say enough that we need to be aware of what is going on around us. We need to be our brother's keeper. We are the watchtower. We are, we are that for our, our families, for our communities, for our states, for our nation, for the world. And then we need to support survivors in, in their healing journey. The system is not equipped the healthcare, the medical, the mental health system, they are not equipped for the long-term healing journey. It is not five sessions. It's not one 45-minute session with a therapist. There are so many deep wounds that take time and practice and repetition and the continuity of care and multiple providers for someone to heal, there has to be reform. There has to be these, like what you're doing with Safe House Project and, and mentoring and supporting rehabilitation and restorative homes. We just need those. I'm going one step further. It can't just all be volunteer and out of some the goodness of someone's heart because we need the continuity of care because we need our provider to be here today and in five years. We have to raise that level of care for them as well so we're we're paying them this is such intense and beautiful work we get to work with people who have some of the most resilient beautiful souls that have ever been here if you're talking to a survivor you're talking to someone who is so just strong just honoring even in the mess however they show up and knowing that they're worth fighting for and and doing what that takes there's so much the community can do so sum that up take care of your family engage in your your family and your community ask hard questions learn you know support restorative causes and and that healing uh, process policy go for it there's so much there really and is love, just but there it is. It's love and it's showing love. And it's through all of those things doing that with this heart of love because without it, so many of those things fall flat. 
And it's, I think, the thing that I notice the most as we work with survivors is that they want to belong and they want to feel loved and they don't want to feel like a charity because they're not. They're individuals who are worthy of the restorative healing and they deserve it. And how do we instill in them that sense of empowerment to move forward into their dreams and their future, not defined by somebody else, but defined by where they really want to go? And that's the long-term goal of everything you talked about, policy reform, legislation reform, going through with improving our foster care system, our mental health services, medical. I mean, the list is long. And so whenever people are like, oh, how can I get involved? It's like, okay, what part of this fight are you passionate about? Because there's a lot of work to be done, but it's a solvable issue when we all engage and kind of do our own little piece of the big, big puzzle that's out there. So... I just love that. I also really want to go back to just your point, the very first one about not sensationalizing what this is. I think that that was just something I really wanted to come back to because the importance of that is that when we sensationalize, we are not going to accurately identify survivors because if we're only looking for these very extreme versions of the truth, then we miss what's right in front of us. And so how do we really understand what this looks like on a day-to-day basis for individuals in our own community? And that's the that's the power of going a little bit de- deeper and taking our awareness and turning it into meaningful education. If you haven't had a chance to take the OnWatch training, we encourage anyone listening to IamOnWatch.org and do that because These podcasts and that training and other trainings out there are really working to help you feel empowered and equipped to be part of the solution. So we appreciate everybody who has gone on and done that. I know that we're going a little bit longer than our normal podcast, but I do want to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about your nonprofit and what you're looking to do, because I think that's such an important part of how you are choosing to invest in this industry as we move forward. So my nonprofit is called the Healing Center for Complex Trauma, and I'm the president and founder, and I'm working with an amazing team of professionals and people who who want to get involved and, and do something about this. And my, my decision to do this was, it kind of happened in some ways, but it was compelled. I've been in and out of the hospital for 30 years, I've spent a year and a half of my life in the hospital because of flashbacks and self-harm and just inability to function because of the overwhelming and overpowering associative issues that I would have. I'd be unsafe and, and unbearable for a lot of people. So the best option for me was to be in the hospital, but that is not a therapeutic environment. And it's, mostly for med stabilization, crisis management. It's three days generally, not three months, which was my last day. And even when I was in the hospital the last time, and it's been almost six years now, they looked all over the country to find anyone, anyone that could work with any of my symptoms, which were, again, dissociation, eating disorder, self-harm. And they're all very terrifying there, and this was six years ago, there was nothing. There was no place I could go. And the burden of all of this had been put on my family and my friends, and they were worn out 
they were terrified. I mean, my poor children, they all have vicarious trauma from watching me in flashbacks or having to be my caretaker when I would be like that, wondering if I was going to die. And I, I was very careful I, about talking about things like that, but it was still, I couldn't control it. And then I had a couple of therapeutic relationships that were very abusive that caused more harm than good. And there really wasn't anyone trained to handle anyone like me. There wasn't anyone that had the stamina or the capacity to handle anyone like me. And I did find a therapist that we, we made something work, but it still was not ideal. And even now I, I can't see him because of finances. Okay, I am tenacious. I'm I'm here, I'm gonna do this. Then I became part of Utah Trafficking and Persons Task Force and I showed up and they found out I was a survivor and it, I, you could feel the room kind of buzz. It was an interesting thing. And then several people asked to talk to me about what I'm doing and I'm like, I have a dream, but I'm not doing anything. And this was just seriously a year out of being in the hospital. Like it, I was fragile, it was not, I wasn't in that warrior mode yet, but we, we just, we gathered the next month. I had over 60 people come to the meeting of someone they don't know. I have no credentials. DID, you don't put it at the end of your name to say, hey, I'm calling, <laughs> you know, I'm a professional. And so, but I had doctors and attorneys and legislators and, you know, people just, so many people showed up and all of them saying, hey, I'm interested in this because I have seen this. And most of them were part of the Trafficking Persons Task Force, not all. And they're like, we're losing people. People are dying. This is preventable. We can do something about this. And so why don't we do something about this? So we're doing something about this. Our intention is to have a facility that is re residential, we'll have outpatient, residential, and then transitional, and then independent living. So all of the range of care in there, and including if someone is highly suicidal, including if there is self-harm and there's a lot of dissociation. Because of the things that people don't wanna treat, they don't wanna treat dissociation, they don't wanna treat someone who's chronically suicidal, they don't wanna treat someone who chronically self-harms. And, and so that's our target. I, basically designing my dream, like what I wish was there for me. But because it's such a universal need, I have people showing up to work on this because they're like, yeah, it's not out there. So that is our dream and we're diligently working on it. You guys are doing so much to fill the need of what, what we've seen across the restorative care space in America. While there are many incredible programs that will do emergency long-term and transitional care finding places that will take the hardest of the hard cases as we've spoken before we know is such a challenge and so i love that you are really moving forward on seeing that vision come true that's not just your dream come true that's our dream come true because we've seen survivors really not be able to receive the services that they need because 
complex PTSD, because of DID, because of suicidality, or whatever those other things may be. And so you guys are really working, and we're going to be thrilled to see you fulfill a void in this space, because there are so many survivors that need you. So thank you for being so courageous to take those hard moments for you and those life experiences that have been challenging and channel that into something that is going to serve so many survivors. You are saving lives and you are a hero, not just for what you have survived, but really what you are, again, doing to serve others. Thank you. Thank you. I decided if I can't have that for me, I will do everything I can until my last breath to make sure someone else has has that. And and again, I like what you were saying earlier about the choice of, you know, what they want to be and and how they want to become. And you know, when all of the choice was taken of, of how they spent maybe even every second of their life, whether what they ate, who they spoke with, whether they slept, whether they could even go to the bathroom or whatever, choosing to heal is is also a choice and some people it takes a while to choose that because that trust has to be there again the longevity of care knowing that in five years you know if i relapse if i if i'm struggling again that i'll have a place to return and it's just it's messy it is very beautiful and glorious and heavy and terrifying i my friends are all going straight to heaven because I think I probably give them heart attacks on a regular basis. Is this one of those? You're going to be okay in an hour if we talk or do we need to do something more? But it's just, it takes heroes on every level to enter those healing journeys to accompany someone. And I just, I'm so grateful for those that are in mine and for you guys for what you're doing and it's just amazing. It, it brings out the very best in people. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything you want to leave us with before we sign off? If I do have one more thing to say, it would be to survivors and that, you know, what happened to you was not your choice. Someone taking away your will is not a choice and healing is possible. And I you know I've talked about how hard it is and it is hard, but it is possible. I hope that my story of how dark and just in the depths of hell I've been, when I thought there was no light, there was no life, there was no reason to get up, there was no reason to move, that I was literally a child of hell, that I, I felt like my only purpose in life was to hurt people. And here I am, now we're just really engaged in loving and serving. I, I hope that that can be a story to reach someone who might be experiencing some of the same ideas about themselves and be in a spaces where they aren't functioning or the hope has just been obliterated. That if I can come through that and I can be here now, you can, and you're worth fighting for. And if someone else doesn't fight for you, you fight for you. And then fight for someone else. There's so much hope. There is so much light. There's so much more to your story. So just keep going. As we close, William Wilberforce once said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. 
We've all had defining moments in our lives where we faced a choice to either engage or look the other way. Make your choice now to engage. Subscribe to our podcast for future content involving how you can make a difference in stopping trafficking by 2030.